Well, good morning. Good to see each of you here today. Take your Bibles, turn back with me again to John chapter number 1. We'll begin reading in verse number 35. I'm going to speak to you this morning on the subject of the requirements of following Jesus. I think it would be very informative and very inspiring if we had the time to go around the auditorium this morning and let each person tell how he or she came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, don't freak out. I'm not going to do that, but I think it would be informative. Some of you grew up in the church. From your earliest memories, your family has been involved in the activities of the church. But at some point in time, you placed your personal faith in Jesus along and began the long legacy of faith. Others may have only heard the name Jesus Christ when someone was angry in your household. But at some point, somebody introduced you to the real Jesus and your life was changed. There are probably as many stories as there are people in this place this morning. No two are exactly alike. We met Jesus under different circumstances and through different means. But this much we must recognize, when you come to know Jesus personally, you're changed. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. In the remainder of this first chapter of John, we're going to hear the conversion stories of five men. Five men who met Jesus in the very earliest stages of his ministry. And this morning I want to share three things with you about following Jesus from our text. First of all, following Jesus requires honest reflection. Previously in our study of John... We learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he takes away the sins of the world. The first person that we are to meet in our text this morning is Andrew. And his personal encounter with Jesus took place the day after John the Baptist had announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God. We pick up in verse 35 where it says, and again, The next day, John stood with two of his disciples. Now remember, as I told you in the beginning of the study, anytime you see the the name John, it's referring to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. So he says, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to him, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is a saying translated teacher, where are you staying? It's almost as if John the Baptist is presenting his disciples to Jesus and saying to them, you're prepared. Now go. He is the one that I have been telling you about, so follow, follow him. What they heard must have struck a responsive chord in their hearts before immediately, it says, they followed Jesus. 
Andrew and his companion, who was probably the Apostle John, were not satisfied about just hearing about Jesus. They wanted a direct, personal relationship with him. They evidently were too shy to approach him directly, but they followed him at a distance. They may initially have been drawn to follow him some extent by curiosity. But whatever it is, they must have been drawn immediately by the question that Jesus asked them. He asked them, why are you following me or what are you looking for? When Jesus saw them, he noticed them. He turned and said to them, what do you seek? Those are the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John, and they are very remarkable. They're also the very first words that Jesus uttered in his public ministry. And yet they go right to the heart of life. Those four words go right into the heart of our everyday lives. In them, Jesus asked the most profound question of all. What are you looking for when you follow me? Now, he's not asking them for his benefit. He's asking them for their own benefit. Jesus asked a question not because he desired to know. He already knew. He asked them that they might know their own hearts. The question he asked, he also asked of all of us who would follow him. What are you looking for in following me? He really makes us think about what it is that we're hoping to attain by following him. Some people are seeking to escape from the hardships of life. If you're looking for Jesus to keep you out of all the storms of life, you're in for a disappointment. In fact, we have a great example. When Jesus sent his disciples into the very teeth of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, we find recorded in Matthew chapter 14. In fact, Jesus does not promise to keep us out of the storms of life. But he does promise to be with us in the storms of life. Other people come to Jesus mainly because they are interested in wealth, prestige, or power. But in spite of the promises of the prosperity gospel, Jesus never promised that at all. Jesus does not promise us riches and worldly success if we follow him. Following Jesus leads to spiritual blessings, but not always material blessings. I think the reply of Andrew and John is an interesting one. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? If you put those two together, it doesn't really fit very well. Seems an odd reply to Jesus' question. But I think it reveals that Andrew and John did not just want something from him. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to talk with him. They wanted to talk about their lives. They wanted to learn from him all that God had for their lives. They wanted more than just a little religion in their life. They wanted a relationship with Jesus. 
Not only did following Jesus require honest reflection, but following Jesus requires decisive action. He says in verse 39, he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day, for now it was about the 10th hour. First of all, there is an invitation to investigate. Jesus' invitation here is come and see. That's an invitation to investigate. Come and and find out about me. Take your time. Ask what you want. Make up your mind. What a tremendous response this is to the kind of men that John and Andrew are. They, like most of us men, we need time. We need time before we move. Our Lord's instant response to that need is very encouraging. Men are still like that today. You can't push them or drive them. They need time to make up their own minds. All they need is an invitation to investigate the claims of Jesus. And the gracious invitation of Jesus is still open to us all. Secondly, if you would be a witness, you must spend time with Jesus. And it was about the 10th hour or about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Who cares what time it was? What's that got to do with anything? Well, John does because John evidently never forgot the day nor even the hour that he first spent time with Jesus. It was the dividing line in his life before John knew Jesus and after John knew Jesus. I would hazard to say if you're truly saved, it's true of your life as well. The time before you knew Jesus and the time after you came to know Jesus. If you are a Christian, your life is forever divided in your mind between the time before you knew Jesus and the time after you knew Jesus. But as important an event as this obviously is in his life, he doesn't tell us any details. None. He doesn't even mention his own name. But instead, he only tells us about Andrew. But notice one night, afternoon of abiding with Jesus changed their lives. Soon afterward, he issued another invitation to them in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. He says, come after me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And they went... And attached themselves to him and they never went home again. First he invites us to come and to see and to know and experience him. And then he asks us to come and help to win others. There's also the wonderful invitation to come to him for relief for our burdens and our sorrows. He says in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Come to me all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he gives a promise to those who accept his invitation, recorded in John chapter 6, verse 37, that one that comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Not only does following Jesus require decisive action, but third, following Jesus results in deliberate sharing. What we have is too good 
to be kept a secret. The result of spending time with Jesus was that Andrew realized that he, had the, he was in possession of some information that was too good to keep to himself. So Andrew went immediately and found the person most important in his life, the person closest to him in the world, and that was his brother, Simon. And he brought him to Jesus. Verse 40 continues the story by telling us one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Andrew was one of the first two disciples who followed Jesus. As previously stated, we must assume that the other apostle was John. It's significant that the first disciple to follow Jesus was also the first to bring his own brother to Christ. In verse 41, we are told, and he found his own brother, Simon. He found first his own brother, Simon. Well, there are several possibilities in understanding that verse. John could be saying that Andrew found his brother first before he did anything else. Or John could mean that Andrew found his own brother first before he found anyone else. Or he could mean that Andrew was the first to find his brother, implying that others also reached their brothers Notable here is John also brought his brother, James, to Jesus. But the point is, regardless of which you choose, is that Andrew had something that he just had to share with his brother. It's important that we note that there is no formal training necessary to be a witness. You'll remember from the last message that you heard, we talked about what is a witness. A witness is simply someone who shares what they have heard and seen, what they have experienced in their own lives. You really don't have to memorize any special plan. You don't have to know all the New Testament by heart. You don't have to be licensed or ordained or even have the permission of the church in order to share, all you have to do is spend some time with Jesus and then go tell someone about it. There can be no question that the most effective means of bringing people to Christ is one at a time on an individual basis. And every time we see Andrew in the Bible, he's bringing someone to Jesus. The second time Scripture mentions Andrew is in connection with the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in John chapter 6. It was Andrew who brought the young boy with the five loaves and fishes to Jesus. The third time that we see Andrew is mentioned in John chapter 12. Here we are told that there were some Greeks who were seeking to meet Jesus. They sought out Philip and asked to see Jesus. Philip didn't know what to do. So he asked Andrew. Andrew did what he always did. He brought them to Jesus. Also significant in our study this morning is that Jesus begins with us where we are, but he changes us. He changes us into what he wants us to be. Simon Peter 
is a unique individual. And Simon Peter's experience is repeated by each individual who comes to Jesus. In verse 42, it says, And he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, this is the only text in Scripture where we find out why Simon's name is changed to Peter. How would you like it if the first time you met somebody, they said, oh, your name is John. I'm going to call you Fred. But the reason he did so was important. Jesus sees us where we are. He says, you are Simon. But he also saw Simon for what he would become. He says, you are Simon. And the New Testament reveals that Simon was often impetuous. He was highly unstable and he was known for sticking his foot in his mouth. But Jesus regards Simon not just as he is, but what he shall become. But you shall be called Cephas or Peter. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock, which is the exact opposite of unstable Simon. Simon had a new relationship with Jesus that's going to change his very personality. It didn't happen overnight. He didn't wake up the next morning and he was Peter. No, there was still a lot of Simon left in him. It took a long time for Peter to become a rock. Peter had a knack for making ridiculous suggestions. You may remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is recorded in Mark chapter 9, where the disciples were able to see Jesus in all of his glory. Peter makes these suggestions. He says, let's just build a booth here and stay. Stay on the mountain. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be betrayed, Peter immediately said, Lord, I don't know what these others may do, but I will never, never leave you. But he did. Little by little, he did become what Jesus said he would. Peter later wrote to all of us as believers that the same can happen to us. He wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This experience is repeated over and over in our day as well. We come to the Lord as we are. He knows all about us. He knows our good, however good that may be. He knows all of our bad, however bad that may be. He sees us as we are. He accepts us as we are, but he transforms us into what he would have us to be. God sees not only our past, but he sees our potential. Now, here's something to think about. In John chapter 1, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ, making him the first home missionary. 
And in chapter 6, he brings some Greeks to Christ, which makes him the first foreign missionary. Was Andrew an ordinary man? Yes. But he was a man whose influence is abiding because of his love and his loyalty for Christ. He was an ordinary man of average capacity. He seemingly was without any significant, outstanding gifts, but he had real character. Though he had no earth-shaking accomplishments to his credit, through his faithful witness and unassuming service, he left his mark on succeeding ages to come. The world needs more ordinary people like Andrew. When it comes to sharing our faith, there are two things that are true of us. Number one, we all desire to see our friends and loved ones come to know Jesus, right? Number two, we all feel somewhat at a loss about how to go about doing that. Bill Bright, the late founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ, said millions of surveys which use have been to taken around the world indicate that approximately 98% of Christians have not introduced anybody else to the Savior. When it comes to sharing our faith, our biggest hurdle is fear. Fear that I might do more harm than good. Fear that I will not know what to say. Fear that they might ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Fear that I may invade somebody's privacy. Perhaps the greatest fear is the fear that I may fail. Yet, if we are faithful to share the Lord with others, it's not up to us what will be the result. The result, the responsibility for the results are with the Lord. You may or may not be aware of the story about a man named Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher. He had a young man in his class he was was concerned about, and he determined in his heart to go talk to him about Jesus. But just the thought of talking to this rather crude young man left him trembling in his shoes. But he set out one afternoon to the shoe store where he worked. Now, Andrew was a timid and soft-spoken man, the opposite of what you think about when you think about a bold evangelist. He went into that shop that day, frightened and unsure whether he even had the courage to confront this young man with the gospel. When Kimball later recalled this incident years later, he said, I could not even remember what I said. Something about Christ and his love, and that was all. He said that it was a decidedly weak appeal. But this young man ended up giving his life to Jesus Christ. This young man's name was D.L. Moody. He became a best-known evangelist of his generation, all because one timid man shared Jesus with him. Sometimes we don't feel that we can do that. There is another type of evangelism I just want to bring to your attention as we close. It's called invitational evangelism. Anybody can do that. Statistics tell us 
that 70 to 90% of the people who join any church in America come through the influence of a friend, relative, or acquaintance. They came because they were invited. And no amount of theological expression from the pulpit can overcome a lack of invitational expression from the pew. Let's pray. Father, we truly do want those people around us in our lives to know Jesus, to have the peace and the freedom that comes by knowing that your sins are forgiven. Pray, Lord, that we might have an opportunity to be a witness for you. Even if it's a decidedly weak witness, use it, Lord, that we might win those around us who don't know you. Father, I pray that you'd help each of us to apply the truths that we have seen this morning in our own lives. And if there is one today in this place that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, Lord, it would be our prayer this morning that they might understand that they can be saved right here, right now, by simply recognizing that they are sinners, that they can't do anything to save themselves, that Jesus, however, has already done everything necessary for them to be saved. He paid for their sins on the cross of Calvary, and all they need to do is accept that free payment, repent of their sins, and ask to be saved saved. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.